brute force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. All right, hey everybody, welcome back to Software Radio. Today, I have a special guest, Colonel Bob Adams, MD, MBA, Navy SEAL, 18 years in the Navy, 12 as a SEAL, actually 18 years in the military, I believe. Is that correct, Bob? No, it was 18 in the Navy, you had it right, and then 18 more in the Army as an Army doctor. (laughs) Okay, got it. Also uh, author of Six Days of Impossible, and his website, you can check out, I encourage you to, sealhellweek.com. That's sealhellweek.com. And uh, Six Days of Impossible, it's it's on Amazon. So please go pick up a copy. And yeah, welcome to the show, Bob. Oh, thank you very much, sir. I always like to kick it off with just kind of having you give us a background, kind of origin story. Where'd you grow up? Why'd you go in the military? Why the SEALs? And just catch us up to date to what you're up to now. As I was saying just before we started this, uh, you and my background are very similar in that I grew up in an alcoholic dysfunctional father family, left at 17 to join the Navy. I chose the Naval Academy because three of four, four of my previous generations of males had been Academy grads and I wanted to be a SEAL. I said, well, I might as well be an officer if I'm going to be a SEAL. And off I went. But it was as much to get away as it was anything else. And interestingly, this was 1973 that I would graduate at the Naval Academy when SEALs were really a brand new entity. And the Academy viewed viewed my career choices quite negatively. Dude, there's no way you're going to make Admiral. And they were right. But I, I just kept quiet, did my four years, got my commission, went to underwater swimmer school in Key West, Florida as a vacation thing on route to my destroyer because only three men from our class got SEAL slots, one of whom was Admiral Eric Olson, our first star, first four-star Navy SEAL, as you know. Off they went and off I went. And while I was down in SEAL school, similar to what happened to you on your dive boat, uh, the Navy SEAL there was my instructor who said, hey, you're having a lot of fun down here. We're trying to hurt you. Don't you think you'd like to be a SEAL? <laughs> and that's, you know, that's what sort of re-triggered my direction. And uh, I ended up a year on that destroyer out of San Francisco. And Lieutenant Scotty Lyons and my future instructor, Steve Frisk, came through San Francisco recruiting. I got off the ship, went to the tryouts, and six months later found myself uh, in Bud's training. So it was, a, you know, just a combination of hopes and dreams coming to reality, and the Navy let it happen. From six months later, I found myself in Bud's training, and, you know, just hopes and dreams just led to where I was. Class 81, right? Class of 81. And matter of fact, we started, my, our statistics are just like your class's statistics. We started with 70, graduated 11. We had eight officers in our class, and only three of us graduated two of us from the Naval Academy. And, you know, anything you do in life that is a little harder, as as you pointed out before, gives you a better chance of, of uh, moving on. And the reason I wrote the book, Six Days of Impossible, about Navy SEAL Hell Week, I did it as a doctor looking back. Because as, as you know, I'm a, I'm a physician now, and I've spent yeah. 18 years in special operations and combat operations. And you know, I've always looked back with my 11 classmates to try to figure out why we made it when everybody else didn't. 
and, and you'll appreciate this, the one common theme that I write about in the autobiography of those 11 men in this book is that we had all been kicked to the curb by life multiple yeah. times. And then we went to SEAL training. <laughs> so that helped a lot. All right. So high attrition rate, just like my class. And then you're, you had shared something interesting, which I kind of arrived at my own conclusion that basically most of the people that graduate buds have already been kind of kicked in the teeth. Like life, they learn how to deal with adversity, all those fancy questionnaires that they ask us. You know, when you finish, like, what sports did you play? Who did you hang out with? I think if they just asked us, have you had your ass kicked before in life prior to <laughs> showing up here? You know, that would be a pretty good indicator you're going to make it. Absolutely. I mean, I went back as a physician and interviewed all my other classmates. And um, that was what I discovered is the one thing we all knew had happened to us is that life had uh, tested us. And it wasn't just because we wrestled or played lacrosse, although or one New York State Golden, Golden Gloves boxer, but, you know, we'd had real life crises that, uh, that messed with us. Yeah. And it made it a whole lot easier to deal with the hardest that most people can even imagine you and I have had to go through. When it gets that hard and you've got options because life has been really good to you, it's just too easy to walk away. Yeah. Okay, so after after buds, so that was kind of fun. I like telling this story because uh, my in, instructors were right out of Vietnam. The Vietnam War had just ended. Mike Thornton, Medal of Honor winner, has a whole chapter in my book when he tried to run me out of training and almost succeeded. So just some really great men, you and I, in the company of heroes. But the war was winding down, and the money was going away, and the military was drawing down. So five years later, I said, you know, I've, I'm going to go be an MBA and, and teach my fortune on the outside. Transferred to the reserve SEAL teams, came out to the East Coast with SEAL Team 4, went back to school to get my MBA, got a job as an MBA, hated it immediately, <laughs> called the Navy up and said, take me back. I made a terrible mistake. Turns out they don't give you 30 days of paid vacation in the <laughs> civilian world. <laughs> oh, yeah. So well, they said... Well, Lieutenant, thanks for your time. But, you know, we're still drawing down. We don't need more frogmen. You know, call me. So, you know, we'll, we'll call you if there's another war. That war didn't happen until 1987 when my SEAL team got activated. About two months after I got sworn into the Army as a second lieutenant medical school student. So I just skipped over a series of years to get to that exciting ending. But, uh, after being told by the Navy that they couldn't bring me back on active duty, I went home to my wife and said, you know, I don't like this MBA thing. Uh, it's not as much fun as I thought. I think I want to go, go to medical school and be a doctor. And I was 30 at the time. And she's, well, go ahead and try. You're too old. They won't take you anyway. <laughs> and we had one kid and one kid on the way. And I, and I pulled her aside one more time and I said, you know, sweetheart, if we do this, I'm looking at seven years of abject poverty for us, you know, and we're making a good living now. Do you, you know, will you really let me do this and, you know, stay the love of my life? And she just was very simple in her answer. She goes, we were poor and happy when we got married. We can be poor and happy again. And for seven years, we were poor and happy raising two children in, in med school and residency. But then that that popped me out at Fort Bragg, North Carolina for my first duty assignment, where two months after I got there, I got activated to invade Haiti as on parachute 
aircraft number one with a division commander because he saw a Navy SEAL patch on my Army uniform. <laughs> so I was like, oh, boy, wasn't quite ready for this transition to the combat doctor world. I, I got ahead of myself because I wanted to tell you why yeah. I ended up as an Army doctor. When I got permission from my wife to go to medical school, I fired off an, a scholarship application to the Army and the Navy uh, after being accepted. And they both wrote back immediately and said, we got a scholarship. The Navy said, I'll give you three years. And the Army said, I'll give you four. And med school is real expensive. You know, so I had, I had the scholarship. I knew it was going. Put on my dress blue uniform, put on all my bangles and beads, walked into the 06 office that ran the scholarship program and said, uh, you know, sir, I'm a third generation Naval Academy. I'm a career-oriented officer, and I'm going to go to school on a four-year scholarship because the Army's offered me one, match it, and I'll be a Navy doctor, which yeah. I fully expected him to do. And he said, no, you didn't really qualify, Bob. You know, thanks for coming by, but, you know, we're going to take these Yale and Harvard guys. They're way smarter than you. And I went, okay, but, you know, they're not going to stay beyond their obligated service, and I think yeah. you're making a mistake. Told this same story, by the way to the two-star Navy admiral who swore me in to the Army as a second lieutenant. Because he, he looked at me and goes, Bob, that just really couldn't have happened. And, I, and he, he made a couple of phone calls to D.C. and came back and said, I'll oh, be danged. It really did happen. So raise your hand. I'm going to turn you into an Army second lieutenant. But when I'm done, I just can't bring myself to c c congratulate you because I had just made commander in the SEAL teams. He goes, I just turned a Navy commander into an Army second lieutenant. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, but now, now you didn't ask this, but fast forward to the invasion of Haiti story I just started to tell you. When, I grad, when doctors graduate from medical school, we graduate as captains or lieutenants in the Navy. And so 03s. But even though I had been demoted to go to medical school, which Ensign or, or Army would have done, they recalculate your rank for and give you half credit for prior commissioned service. So instead of graduating as a captain, I graduated as a major, which is nice from a pay standpoint, but it also is unpleasant because it puts you in command and leadership jobs right off the bat, and you're just right out of residency. Yeah. So I, I took command of a clinic, a special operations clinic in Fort Bragg, and hadn't been there two months before I got invited to parachute into Haiti with the 82nd Airborne. And I'm sitting on the, the tarmac with the commanding, the commander of that 82nd Division I'm supposed to go in with. And I go, you know, sir, I've only been a doctor all by myself for about two months now. I'm not sure I know what I'm <laughs> supposed to do when I, when I hit the ground. And I haven't been an Army doctor for long at all. So he goes, he goes, Doc, don't worry about it. Your only job is to keep me alive. I went, oh, okay, I can do that. <laughs> yeah. So, oh, gosh, only months after that adventure, the Delta Force command group came by and asked me if I'd like to come to Delta Force as their command surgeon. And I told them no. I said, you know, I've been there, done that special ops thing. I'm a new doctor. I got to get to deliver some babies and see some more patients and, you know, develop my skill set. But check back with me in two years. And almost two years of the day, I get a, uh, how about now? <laughs> oh, well, that works. <laughs> and I ended up being the command surgeon for Delta Force for four years doing their rapid deployment, you know, tier one activity stuff. And, you know, I'd mentioned Eric Olson earlier, our first force Navy SEAL. I was a lieutenant colonel then, and Eric was a captain of six. And we both walked into the Delta Force area briefing room, bumped into each other. Now we're 
classmates. We, you know, we chased women together, drank beer together, and Bob, <laughs> here we, here we are. <laughs> and he and going to our briefing. Oh, Eric, what are you doing here? He goes, Bob, what are you doing here? I said, well, I, I work here. I'm the new command surgeon. And he goes, well, I'm the new commanding officer of SEAL Team Six. I said, well, I'll be damned. <laughs> And we we had a lot of fun over those years watching each other's teams work together in our you know in the joint world that we all live in. Yeah, God, what a great great story. Why medicine though? I, I missed that part. Like, what was the the kind of what got you interested in medicine? No, good pickup. I didn't explain that, and it's worth revisiting because when the Navy would not take me back. And I discovered myself not enjoying the job I was doing as an MBA in Washington, D.C., Naval Sea Systems Command stuff. You know, I came home to my wife and I said, I've been really thinking hard about what I want. What I want to be is a platoon commander in the SEAL teams again, but they won't let me play that game. So I've got to find something that I can enjoy as much as I enjoyed that job, which to this day is the best job I've ever had. But when I looked back at my college years, there was one course, the only course that I got an A plus on, and that was biology. So then I started thinking, well, who does biology things? And I go, wait, doctors do biology things. So <laughs> then I started looking into the doctor world. I didn't have any role models to fall back on. And I uh, just thought about it and thought about it. One day I came home to my wife and I said, I think I want to go to medical school. And I get two things from going to medical school. One is I get to be a doctor, which I think I'm really going to enjoy. And the second, I'm going to get my green ID card back because I wanted to be back on active duty. So my, from day one, my plan was not just to be a doctor, but to be a, a military doctor, to be able to do the things that I love. And it's, it's turned out to, by the way, to be a brilliant choice. Yeah. Uh, my second book, which was just published, if you'll forgive this obvious plug, Swords and Saints, A Doctor's Journey, just came out this month, and it's looking back on 35 years of medicine and peacetime and wartime, you know, Iraq with the 82nd Airborne, which if we have time, we can talk about. And it's, again, making the point that, you know, you can do anything for 35 years and still be excited if you love what you do. And I think you said that in one of your interviews also. You need to love what you do. And no amount of money in the world is worth doing a job you hate. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that 100%. What I found myself was in the early part of the war, 2003, doctors were doing six-month rotations in Iraq and coming back. And that was an ugly time for the war, lots of casualties. And uh, the military medical corps said, you know, we're going to change these doctor rotations to one year. And I had just made full bird colonel, and I'd left the Delta Force by now, and I was back in command of the 82nd Airborne Division Clinic. And I saw the handwriting on the wall, called up the bosses and said, I think I would like to go to Iraq now, because it'll be the last of the six-month deployments. They said, oh, okay, we don't really have a place for a colonel, but uh, we got a job for a doctor. And I said, well, do it. Give me the doctor's job, because that's what I like best anyway. And I found myself deployed to Habaniya, Iraq, middle of bad guy country in 2003 with the 782nd Charlie Medical Company of the 82nd Airborne Division. And we, we took over a bombed out airfield and turned it into an emergency room, a, a full clinic, a five bed hospital. And all we had to work with was bombed out stone buildings without doors, windows or electricity. So that was a challenge in 130 degree heat. And I learned a lot about desert medicine and the, the challenges that come with it. 
and I look back on it and I say it was without question the most amazing experience I've ever had as a doctor and one that I'd really rather never do again. I mean, things that you see with explosive injuries and gunshot wounds, they're not things that you get to train for very much in residency. Yeah. So it's like, thank you very much for your time, sirs, but, you know, don't call me again. (laughs) (laughs) Is there any, I mean, I can, from being in Afghanistan and and Iraq, I've seen some of those field hospitals and it's, it's obviously challenging environment. Was there any particular incident that stands out in your mind as like, wow, this is like, this is pretty heavy stuff? Yeah, 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 there is. There is. There's, there, there's two, actually. Uh, and I'll give you the really short one first. We had an Iraqi working on building our clinic when a, a stone wall fell on him, busted his leg, and he shows up in my brand new, barely have gauze pad clinic with bone sticking out of his leg and find morphine given. And through the translator, we tell them under current rules, we can't treat Iraqis in our surgical facility. So we're just going to package you and send you to your doctors, you know, downtown. And the dad eyes got wide and the kids eyes got wide. And they go, you don't understand, sir. They're going to cut my leg off. What? And sure enough, you know, Iraqi medicine back then was 25 years behind the times. And they didn't have external fixators and the kinds of things I anticipated would be needed. So I, I was colonel. I scrambled a helicopter, medevac, sent him to the surgeons. And the next day I get a call from the general in charge going, Doc, do you know we have a policy against not treating Iraqis with U.S. US surgical facilities? I said, we do, sir. And if I can quote your policy to you, it says, unless life or limb is threatened. And then I told him the story. He goes, oops, sorry to bother you, Doc. Thank you very much. <laughs> so, there you go. That was, a, oh, that was kind of throwing my colonel weight around. But the... The one that I love to tell was I was on call this night. I had three doctors in, in, in Hamania with me, uh, a family doc, a pediatrician, and myself. And I get a 2 a.m. wake-up call saying, there's a casualty inbound. He's a bad guy. It's an ambulance transfer. He tried to uh, attack our headquarters two hours away, and we need to get him to the surgeons because he's still alive with multiple gunshot wounds. Stand by to receive casualty. I went, okay, roger that. Grabbed my medic and said, "Go run back to the bivouac area and get me a doctor and t- two medics. And because we got a casualty inbound. Well, the entire staff showed up, as you might imagine. I had all my doctors, all my medics. And bad guy number one rolls in the door with his right arm amputated, held on by a tourniquet and a piece of skin, three bullet wounds with only one exit wound. And he's talking to us. Jeez. You know, and his IVs had failed in his in his neck and in his leg, and we had to get another IV started, give him meds and fluids, and nobody could get an IV because he bled out so much the, the veins were flat. So I called my pediatrician and I go, "Hey, you can put an IV in a baby's scalp. Put one in this kid." He couldn't do it, so I pulled out my advanced trauma life support book, laid it on his legs, and did what's called a venous cut down, which I'd done on animals before, but never on people. Found his ankle vein, threaded an IV, and tied it off, and went. Oh, Wow, first time I've ever done that. And it worked. <laughs> it was kind of cool. But, you know, and, and everybody in the room knew we were treating a bad guy. I got to throw this comment in because your listeners will wonder, how did we feel? Well, we didn't care as much about his pain as we would have cared about one of our own's pain. But as medical professionals, our job was to save a life. And we'd been given that task and we performed it well. And um, my uh, pediatrician requested me against regulations to go on the ambulance transfer 
because my 18-year-old medic was so scared he couldn't figure out how to drop five milligrams out of a 10-milligram vial of morphine. Uh, so I, we both broke the rules and let him go, you know, and he chose to do something equally heroic that you don't hear from, from you know, doctors thinking of. He grabbed the convoy commander and said, you know, it's four o'clock in the morning, everybody's asleep. If we have to go three hours to save this guy, he's going to die because that's how long the ambulance was. But if you drive right through the center of bad guy country, they won't even know we were there. And, and he got permission to do it. And they drove right through the center of bad guy country, got the casualty to the surgeons in 45 minutes, and he lived. And I hope, honestly, all of us hope that that man will grow up in a more peaceful world because we gave him that chance. Yeah, those are two great stories. So you retired from the, from the Army. And what are you up to now? So um, it's, it's kind of fun. Uh, I got 13 years ago, I retired, 2006. I went from Army Second Lieutenant to Army Medical Corps Colonel and put in my papers as soon as I hit, hit 20. And the Surgeon General called me and said, hey, 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 we'd like you to stay. What can we do? And I said, you've got to let me see patients. And he goes, Colonel, you know, I can't do that. We need you to command hospitals. And I go, I know. And that's why I'm retiring. I want to see patients. I picked a profession that I loved and I was still young doing it as a doctor. So he gave me his blessing. And I went to Raleigh, North Carolina area, a little town of Nightdale, and um, opened a a tiny little clinic there. It took took a chance, not a big chance because I, I had a contract, but this town had no family doctors, just a bedroom community of Raleigh. And I drove up there and looked around and said, it's just me and a PA. I can handle that. And I much prefer being in charge than working for other people. So I signed a contract to take over their clinic that desperately needed a doctor. They just gave it to me for free. Here you go. Take it. It's funny because I hadn't been there five days before I called my wife in a panic, having just signed a three-year contract saying, this place is a disaster. <laughs> Those are people who are drug addicts wanting Percocets and, 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 and Xanax and, you know, and that staff's not happy. And my wife goes, shut up, fix it. You've had five clinics in the Army and you were, they were all broken when you took them over. Just fix it because I'm down here selling your house. Yeah. <laughs> and 11 months later, we won Best Clinic Eastern White County for all the, all the specialties in, in Raleigh. Basic leadership concepts apply in the military and civilian alike. If you, if you work to make people happy, to take care of your customers, you know, good things come of it. Yeah. So fast forward three years now, and I had already decided that I couldn't keep practicing in this town in this tiny little building I was in. We were, we had way outgrown our, our success story. So I um, gathered up some physician partners, friends of mine, many of them military, uh, past military friends, And uh, we opened a new 14,000 square foot clinic right across the street from my old place, bought a million dollar piece of land, put a $3 million clinic on it. And the bank said, here, take our money. You're the only doctor in town. Take it. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Of course, we all had to sign away our future children, you know, as guaranteed. But I'm happy to say that last year, after 13 years, I was able to walk away, sell the clinic. Uh, for a nice profit, because it had been operating for 13 years with our tenants paying paying the rent. And then through four months ago, when the medical system that I operate in as an employee got more stupid than it is now, I just said, you know, guys, it's been fun, but I'm going to go ahead and retire. So I retired from active practice 
no sooner did I step out going, I'm just going to take six months off before I decide what to do. My new book got published and that's creating some energy and a Navy SEAL group company, a managed company out of Florida contacted me and asked me if I'd be a consultant for them. They're called Victory Strategies. Yeah. And they're a leadership management consulting firm. And I signed on with them. Jakob Worksman is the CEO. He was a senior chief teams and not even, I'm sorry, he was not senior listed in the teams. I don't think he made chief. But no. now he's got his own company of, of SEAL consultants and business consultants and I said, I'll sign on if you'll let me work to fix the broken medical systems. So that's my focus now is we're knocking on doors to say, who wants to know the Navy SEAL method for proper leadership and management so we can fix our broken health maintenance systems, which are you know becoming more broken by the minute with this COVID crisis? Yeah, I talked to through um, Harvard Business School. We had one of the top. It's the doctor run hospital. Like the man, all these senior management are former doctors. It's a doctor owned and operated hospital. Well, so what did he say? Because that's designed to be the success story of the future. He had a a kind of fascinating story about them turning around hospitals, but it was, it was more, the conversation was like, how do we fix the U.S. healthcare system in America as, as a whole? And he was just like, that's a, He's like, I don't know. <laughs> it's a big no. problem. Doctor-run hospital leadership teams are pluses and minuses. Most doctors are blithering idiots on anything related to management or finance because the training program is just too all-inclusive. You don't have time to learn other stuff. Yeah. Bob, is there anything else you want to cover on this one? I, I really want to have you back. I got like, I got a ton of notes I took prior to this, but... All right. I, no, I we've, got, we've more than covered it. Yeah. I would love to have you back even next week and I'll, I'll just make sure I got, got my act together on this, on the stable, <laughs> stable connection. Yeah. I want to get into maybe some of the Delta force stuff. So we'll just call this part one and uh, we'll have you back. And yeah, I would love to get into some of the Delta force stuff and then talk about, you know, transition advice. Cause I feel like especially guys in our community are really struggling with the transition. Like they've done, done well in the, in the community but transitioning back to civilian world that's really hard challenge unfortunately i don't think our seal leadership is doing much to help no i totally agree with you and and the yeah. civilian world is bad and getting worse and you know when you leave the the, the, yeah. the womb you got problems and i've, I've uh, treated ptsd and dealt with you know my own combat related issues and over the years and and it's tough taking yeah. taking that step out. We'd have we could have a fun conversation on that. Yeah, yeah, I would I would enjoy that. So we'll have you back. And meantime, sealhellweek.com. Both your books are are on the website, correct? Two different websites for me. Sealhellweek.com is the, the six days of impossible book, and then swordsandsaints.com okay. is the new book. Okay, great. We'll we'll link to both those. Hey, this has been a real honor talking with you. It really has. And, I, and I'm, I'm looking at my calendar next week is, is wide open. So internet get together and let me know. Okay. Well, I'll let's plan on uh, next week and then, uh, yeah, it'll be a fun two part show and, and we'll get in some more stories and deal, sir. Well, thank you again. Enjoy the muggy weather of Puerto Rico. Go, go catch a tarping <laughs> if you can. <laughs> I will. All right, All right. Bob. Take, take care. Bye bye now.
All right, guys. Yeah, short episode this week, but I'm going to have Bob back next week. So this will be a two-part interview. Fascinating guy. I mean, talk about achievement. You know, Navy SEAL, Naval Academy, Fleet, Navy SEAL, doctor, Delta Force doctor, surge, trauma surgeon in Iraq. Like Bob, Bob has a uh, amazing career, tons of stories. I want to get him back on the show and talk about the Delta Force stuff. I think you guys would would be into. Uh, we'll schedule an evening block, uh, get some whiskey going, and get Bob to start telling us some some crazy war stories with this time at uh, Delta Force. I'm sure, especially in South America, he's got some interesting stories to tell us there. But yeah, amazing. And then plus, I want to get into the transition stuff because I not you know I know most of our audience hasn't served. But I think we can talk about a lot of issues and 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 the audience does want to have be helpful. So I think it'll be a kind of an eye opener to a lot of a lot of listeners uh, and who are always asking us and emailing us in like, how do we help my friend? He's transitioning. You know, what can I do to help? So hopefully that'll that'll stimulate some ideas because it is a problem right now. You know, we have one of the largest transitions in our lifetime of active duty to civilian and a lot of uh, a lot of people just kind of suffering, especially now with the economy being affected by the, the whole COVID-19. But I hope you enjoyed kind of a little sneak peek of Bob's story, which is quite amazing. Uh, his book, Six Days of Impossible, is about his SEAL Hell Week experience. You know, those of you that, that don't know what Hell Week is, it's at the end of first phase of SEAL training, which is divided up into three phases. The first phase is kind of kick you in the nuts phase. Um, they try and throw everything at you they can. And at the end of that kind of six weeks is hell week, which is where they keep you up with no sleep for five and a half days straight. And it's not just, you know, stay awake. It's, you know, swim two miles in the ocean at night, you know, run 30 miles, handling firearms and, and other uh, dangerous stuff. So um, it is a pretty, pretty amazing how far you can push yourself and how far the, the what the human body is, is capable of. So we'll have Bob back next week. Uh, so tune in for that. We'd love to talk to him about, like I said, the Delta Force stuff. I also want to talk about a student of mine, Johnny Kim, who was a sniper student, went to Harvard Med School, as if that wasn't enough, applied to the astronaut program and, and is now uh, the third Navy SEAL astronaut uh, behind my platoon commander, Chris Cassidy, who's in charge of the astronaut program. Navy SEAL, sniper, Harvard Med School, now astronaut. Uh, so Johnny Kim's pretty pretty amazing story, but I'm sure Bob has a few uh, stories about Johnny he can share with us well. And that's it. Hope you guys enjoyed this show. We're really kind of ramping up the podcast, uh, getting some really cool guests on, kind of breathing some life back into it. You know, we got our asses kicked at the end of last year. I'll, I'll get into that maybe on one of the other episodes too as well. But excited that we have a partnership with iHeartMedia and now the podcast uh, Software Radio is on the iHeart platform. We're pretty excited about that. And that opens up a ton of opportunities for us to get some really interesting guests on the show from rock, rock musicians to uh, actors and all sorts of other crazy guests. So appreciate you guys tuning in. Please check out all of our survival products in the loadout room, which is the, the SoftRep survival store at SoftRep.com. Uh, we're also running a special right now, uh, 12 months of SoftRep for 12 bucks. So make sure you check that out. 
Uh, one of the other things I want to mention, we are doing this year a fishing, diving, and hunting trip, three separate trips, kind of sponsored by one of the one of the staff writers on SoftRep. So be on the lookout for that. Uh, we're pretty excited to do that. It's kind of, you know, just for our core subscribers, but it's a way to kind of build community and have some fun, blow off some steam. Um, so look for that. That'll be, you know, over the next 12 months, we'll be putting that in place with Nick Kaufman, our editor in chief. And that's it. Hope you guys enjoy the show and I'll see you next week with Bob Adams out here. You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Soft Rep Radio. Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.